0: Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. Uh, this is one of your co-hosts, Jeff Thomas. We've got a real treat for you today. Mark McLean is with us. Uh, Mark, say hello. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me on the the podcast. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're we're thrilled to have you. Uh, Mark is the CEO and co-founder of SailPoint Technologies. He's been running that company for almost 17 years. He co-founded also a a company called WaveSet that sold the Sun Microsystems. So he's got a long, storied 35-year career in technology. And uh, if I try to tell you any more about it, I'm over my skis. So we'll let him tell you about that. He's also married, has three kids, and seven grandchildren, which keep him busy. So, Mark, once again, welcome to the podcast. And why don't you start by just
1: telling us uh, where did you grow up? Tell us about how you grew up and where, and 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 what that was like. Sure, and and you know, like you, Jeff, trying to condense what's in my case just turned sixty years into a few minutes is always fun. But the the very short version is uh, grew up in a. I like to say lower middle class family is the right term for it. My dad was a social worker, my mom was a teacher, so it gives you a sense of the of the uh, lack of financial stature there, in in the suburbs of L.A. and one of four boys in six years, which was a lot of fun, as you can imagine. Uh, the oldest of those four boys, actually, and a great great home life, loving parents, godly family. Uh, kind of, we were a little Church Christ family, and I like to say we were there when the doors were open. You know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and that great spiritual heritage. Grandparents were missionaries and had some really deep spiritual heritage. You know, kind of left LA to go down to San Diego to undergrad, came back, started my career in tech in IBM in the '80s, got an MBA at UCLA while I was still working at IBM. Used that to vault to HP. Hewlett Packard, and that took us from Southern Cal to Northern Cal. And after three more years there, that was a total of 10 in business. I kind of went, I'm not sure I'm cut out to do this corporate thing. I'm not sure it's my gig, kind of climbed the big corporate ladder. I think when I, I joined IBM, it had 400,000 employees. I think when I joined HP, it had 200,000, like, you know, these ginormous companies, right? And so I, I, uh, my wife and I by then, we'd gotten married, uh, met at the 84 Olympics. That's a fun, longer story. Met at the 84 Olympics, got married. Had our first couple kids in L.A., had our third uh, little kiddo uh, in San Jose and then moved to Austin in the mid-90s. And if you know anything about the the world of tech and or the the crazy things that happened to Austin, like when I told people I was leaving the Silicon Valley to come to Austin, they were just like, what are you doing? Who does that in the mid-90s? Where is that? Is that the backwater of Texas? Actually, it was even better, Jeff. I'd say to people, I'm moving to Austin. And then they say, Boston? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Austin, they're like Texas, like <laughs> exactly, like second, right? Like, what are you doing? And uh, but, anyways, we got here and kind of honestly, at the time, thought it would be temporary. Like, surely we won't stay here. and right. come back to California. Found that we loved Austin more than we would thought. Found that uh, I'd gotten into this company, Tivoli, that had just gone public. Then it sold to IBM. It had a nice run, and that's when I started with some buddies around 2000, uh, the first of those startups. So it kind of went from being. A corporate guy to joining an early stage company to actually becoming a co-founder. That was sort of the fast up, up to the first company, the professional version. And I like I say, along the way, blessed to have three really great kids, all of whom are now married with kids Two of our son and our middle daughter live here. Our youngest daughter lives in Birmingham with her husband, and we're just very blessed. Uh, great family, and all kids are walking with the Lord. We're just loving all that at this well, point. Well, you were
0: you were twenty five years ahead of the trend of moving to Austin from California. Exactly. So yeah, exactly. Apparently, you were the first one in. Well done. Okay, and so now now it's not a tech podcast; it's a generous business owner podcast. But maybe give us a couple of minutes. I know it's security, kind of business to business security software, identity. So for maybe just unpack that a little bit for...
1: Yeah, just a little. Time. And both both the original startup, WaveSet, that ran for about five years, 00 to 005 got bought by Sun at SailPoint, which we started right after that and thought would be another five to seven year run and get sold. And instead, as you pointed out, I'm still here 17 years later, which is mind boggling to me. Never would have predicted that in a million years. Both companies have been in and around this space of enterprise security. We sell the mid to large, mostly very large, actually Fortune 1000 type companies. And it's really... I say to people, look, if you want to explain to your grandmother what we do, like we answer three seemingly simple but very challenging questions in the the enterprise scale, like who has access to what? People log into all these systems and get access to data. You sort of want to know who actually has access to what data, and then you want to know how does that align with who should have access? Because what's almost inevitably true in every large organization is the should-be state and the actual state are out of alignment, right? People have access that they either used to need, shouldn't have anymore. Don't have everything they need to do their job effectively. Blah blah blah. So there's who who has access, who should, and then the third question is, and what are they doing with it, right? The famous what his name was Edward Snowden case of a few years ago, where yeah. there you got a guy who should have access and does has access, and then he starts doing very bad stuff, downloading data, shipping it to the Russians, whatever he did, and and so turns out in large scale enterprises, these have always been kind of hard things, but over the last fifteen to twenty years, as we went from Like data centers with captive computers to mobile, laptop, cloud computing—all these fancy buzzwords that most folks have heard. Like the whole world went wide open, so to speak. And now, trying to make sure that the right people have access to the right stuff is just much harder and much more important. So, in many ways, what was a good market opportunity for us twenty odd years ago when we started that first company has really become a phenomenal market opportunity, largely because of what shifted in the world of technology now. You got tons of people and even non-humans trying to access data everywhere, and the data is exploding. There's more of it all the time. And just companies are kind of like deer in the headlights, trying to what do I do about this? And thankfully, we got to the space early, built some really solid tech. So we're incredibly well positioned with a lot of very, very large, important enterprises around the globe. We do business in like thirty eight countries all over the world, blah, blah blah. so it's it's been a crazy. Crazy (laughs) right.
0: So I'm just thinking about this career. This is very unique to me. I guess it's not that uncommon. Maybe out of college, you go to, you know, you get the job at the big company, you bounce around there, you're sort of like, wait, maybe we could launch this thing on our own. That took some guts, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you've already had a sale. Not everybody experiences a sale that early, kind of in their entrepreneurial career. And now you're running this company. It's kind of, Getting bigger, we can, we can talk about what's happening there down the road a little bit. But I'm just thinking about kind of the what were you learning about yourself? Mm. Uh, you know, I'm thinking that maybe you were doing the tech yourself. Now you become more of a leader, maybe with a smaller organization that sells. Now you've got more employees. What have you kind of learned about your, yourself in that process?
1: Yeah, I was never a technical guy who wrote code. I was always around the technology, meaning like I always said we needed people in our company to have technical aptitude. There's hardcore computer scientists who write the code. And then there's people like, hey, you're dealing with a pretty complex technology. You at least have to understand conceptually how it works and and what what a good product works, looks like. and all that. So I was kind of that kind of guy. I had an aptitude for technology, but I was kind of always a sales and marketing businessy guy by heritage. And and to your point, you know, I worked in these giant corporations, came to a a pretty early stage startup, typically had a couple hundred people when I joined it here in Austin, and then it went public and got bigger, and then it got really big because IBM bought it. So by the time I actually started with the three other co-founders, that first startup, I think, honestly, Jeff, if I'd come straight from IBM to HP, I think I would have failed. I think that would have been too big a shock to my system. But I'd kind of stepped through this interim five years at a company that went from a few hundred to a few thousand kind of number. But at least I got to see a company at much smaller scale. Where I used to say we could sort of get your arms around the whole company, I could not get my arms around the whole company at IBM and HP. But when I came to a couple hundred person company, like okay, there's marketing, there's sales, there's finance, there's engineering. You know, you could sort of kind of see all the pieces. You knew all the key leaders. It was like okay, I kind of get this. So
0: Tivoli was kind of the stepping stone to go and wait. Maybe I could get my arms around a smaller organization when you. Founded wave set with your buddies. Is that
1: kind of right? Exactly. Yeah. No, and the funny part of this is like, you know, no, no big horn tooting thing. These are pretty common awards. But I was my co-founder and I won one of these EY entrepreneur yeah. of the year awards in Austin. Yeah. And they're, you know, all over the place. And and I just still laugh at be like, if you had told me, not just asked others about me, if you told me in my 20s I'd ever win an entrepreneur of the order, I'd like, what are you talking about? I'm not an entrepreneur. I'm a corporate guy. Like I was the non-entrepreneur as a kid. I like I used to say I used to call myself the accidental entrepreneur. Like I was not the kid doing the lemonade stand. I was the kid laughing at the kid doing the lemonade stand. Like why would you do that? Let's go play baseball. Mom would lemonade. like, <laughs> right. "What are you doing?" Um so it's just like just this god twisted my story dramatically from where I thought I would be in my 20s and even early 30s to to like deciding, "Oh, it is kind of a calling or a fun thing for me to build businesses. And, and you and I will probably get to this. I know just for me, what kind of really got me going was not just the opportunity to build a cool business with a great strategy, blah, 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 great technology, but to build a culture, right? To kind of define how that company works and what, what makes it who it is, not just what the product is, but kind of what is this company all about? What are the people about? The famous Peter Drucker quote, you and I both know, culture, strategy. For breakfast, you know, like yeah. At the end of the day, you can have a great strategy, and if your culture's broken, you'll probably break down at some point, <laughs> right? Whereas, if you have a great culture, you can even withstand some strategic shifts and probably weather it. This is where you and know, I both are Pat Lencioni fans, right? The whole what he calls organizational health, right? If you if you're a healthy organization, you can actually make a lot of shifts in your business strategy and probably not die because you're healthy. Like people are willing to make change and trust each other and all that stuff. And I thought, wow, if I could figure out how to do that as I build a company with, with some buddies and, and not just hopefully build a successful company that builds good products that customers like, but I could also have employees that really love coming to work because they love their team and they like being a part of this thing. Wow, that would be really fun. And I've been just blessed to get to do that for a long time now. So it's been a lot of fun. Well,
0: you must have learned a lot about company culture, working for big companies, again, moving to Tivoli with a few hundred. Mm -hmm. uh, And folks in Texas have been around a long time. We all know that that company. And then starting your own deal smaller. So you've kind of seen the really big, Mm -hmm. the kind of medium size, and then literally startup. And you had sort of that five-year run. So, and I know you've even wrote a book, really, I would say (laughs) it's about culture, joy and success at work. So what was it that sort of made you think about writing that book? What are the things that you sort of learned along that path that you really just feel I feel like when most people like you and me write a book, it's because we have to, not because yeah. we're professional writers. You just like, I got to like, God's got this idea. I've got to share it with people. So what, what was that catalyst that made you want to do that, write that book?
1: Yeah, it's it's funny. It's a great question. I, I, I thought maybe someday I'd get around to writing a book, but I thought, oh, certainly that'll be after i am done full-time working, right. right? There's no way I could do this while I have a day job, quote unquote. And, you know, that story is a whole different thing. But I'd written some columns for Forbes and they have this whole process to help people do a book. And it, of course, it involves a ghostwriter to help you. But I tell people, oh, I'm very comfortable. Matter of fact, I wanted to put my my writer's name. They don't let you do that. I'm like, yeah. well, he helped me so much. I would say it's my book because I either wrote or edited every word. I either what he wrote I was good with, or if I wasn't, we changed it a lot. And in some cases, what he initially helped me draft was really good, and we didn't change it much. And so, like, I'm like, oh, I own every word in that book, so I'm comfortable not that I have my name on. I, I just didn't have to create it from whole cloth. But at the end of the day, you nailed it. I was getting asked a lot more at that. I'm now into my late mid mid 50s, I guess. And when we started that process, and I just got a lot of people like, "How would you do what you did? You know, you seem to have a, a pretty happy home life, and you're still married to the same person, and your kids seem to like you, and yet you're doing this company thing pretty well. What, what, how? And and our company from inside, people say, "I I like our company. How did how did we how did we get to this thing? So I said, "Okay, let me try to capture some of that. You know, it was really the, the the call there, and. By the way, the, the subtitle Jeff, which I always like to highlight, is "Building Organizations That Don't Suck, comma the Life Out of People." Um, it's kind of a great double entendre there. Yes. You know, how do you build an org that doesn't suck? Because nobody wants to build, nobody wants to work in an org that exactly. sucks. Exactly. And um, but but it's also so many orgs suck the life out of people, right? People like, okay, I'm making money here, but I hate my job, and and they they tolerate it. And by the way, the whole great resignation of the last few years yeah. there's a lot of people going, you know what? I'm not gonna tolerate it. Like, I don't like my job. Why am I getting up and going to a job I hate? It's been a fascinating little psychology experiment. But all that to say, yeah, for me, it was, and with a nice compliment to Pat Lencioni, who I do not know personally. I know some people don't know him, but I've said, that guy, when I discovered him a few years ago, I felt like, okay, he writes the books I would have written if I had the time. And he writes them far better than I ever could. But it's like, he's capturing the, this is the stuff that really matters at work. It's not the fuzzy, soft stuff. It actually is the stuff that matters a lot about how you build companies and products and teams and go after markets and how you treat the competition. And like, that stuff is not soft. It gets like this, oh, the culture is a soft thing. I'm like, bull oh, crap, it's a soft thing. It's it's how you operate. It's how you treat people. It's like saying the social dynamic inside your family isn't real. It's just whether your kids graduate from school or not. Like, who thinks that? Nobody thinks that, right? Like it's weird at work that we sort of kind of put culture in this like weird category of, well, that's sort of the soft stuff for maybe the 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 HR team, but the real business people, you know, they do all that other stuff. Like, no, no, I disagree entirely. I think the real leaders lead in both strategy and execution and culture. It's kind of all three, really. And culture is sort of what drives strategy and execution and the way I think about it. Like if you if you have the right culture, you will Pick the right strategies and you will execute them better than other people because you're less tempted to to, to get caught up in politics and infighting and all the crap that kills a lot of companies, right?
0: Well, one of the things that we were talking about before we started recording was really kind of stewardship of your talents, Yeah. right? And, you know, of course, it's the Generous Business Owner podcast. So how does your thought about being generous to your employees, how is that?
1: manifest itself maybe in the culture that you try to build no it's you brought that up it's a great question i think my you know there's so many pictures of our our relationship with god and our relationship with people in the bible but but the stewardship metaphor to me is the most anchoring one like i get that we're children of god i get that there's all kinds of other metaphors we're sheep you know, like that once we understand what sheep are really like, but, you know, there's all kinds of (laughs) metaphors in the Bible, but the stewardship metaphor to me is a, such a powerful one, especially for leaders, right? Because what gets so screwed up in business all the time is people get into leadership roles, particularly in the C-suite or whatever. And they sort of start to believe their own PR as we used to say. And like, they lose sight of the fact that if you take, if you take a look at that stewardship model in the Bible, I think like, A king, like Joseph, the greatest example of this, I think, in the Old Testament is Joseph, right? Like, you got the pharaoh of Egypt, the most powerful person probably on the planet at that point. And he turns to this guy and goes, you're running the country for me. Now, I'm still the the pharaoh, right? But like, you're going to run the country for me for a while, right? And I'm like, that's kind of how I think we should see our role as CEOs of businesses, owners of businesses. Like, God goes, hey, it's my company. It's my money. It's my world. (laughs) But I'm going to give you this job and I want you to do a really good job with it. And as you and I are talking, Jeff, that certainly means that if you generate wealth, I think are responsible to be good stewards of the wealth, including highly generous with the wealth. But I loved your point when we were talking offline before, like, but you're also supposed to be generous with your time, generous with how you treat your people, generous with how you, how you reward your people. I, I hate one of the stats I hate. what's happened to the you probably know this the ratio of like rank and file employees to ceos used to be like eight to one and now it's like hundreds to one and you're like that's so broken (laughs) like now i can't tell you that my ratio is dramatically better than some because it turns out when you become a public company ceo you kind of have to play by the rules and they have to kind of play pay you by the rule i mean it's like the whole system is kind of busted the choice I have is whether I keep all that money that they insist that's on paying true. me as a public company guy. But but there's just so many things that are kind of broken about how much we elevated the C-suite, particularly the CEO role in the business world. And I think the stewardship metaphor keeps me grounded because it's like, it, this is not mine. Like, this is not my company. The wealth that, that's come out of it is not my wealth. It's like, I am stewarding something for the true owner. And if I can keep that in my mind, I tend to not screw it up. (laughs) You know, I I tend to go, wait a minute, should I spend that money on me? It's not my money. It's God's money. Should I spend my time like that? It's not my time. It's God's time, right? If I can keep that central, I'm far more likely to to do the things that I think God wants me to do with the influence, with the time, with the money, whatever.
0: I think this is such an important point because I feel like many people, and I, frankly, you, you had a grandparent that was a missionary. My father was a business guy who became a pastor. Sometimes it goes oh, the other way, wow, but it usually, right. I, and so I, I kind of grew up thinking, well, if you're all in for God, I was kind of worried to say, send me anywhere. Cause I was afraid he's going to send me to Africa. I didn't want to yeah. go to Africa. Right. <laughs> Isn't that what everybody thinks? And so I thought, we all, I all, thought, we all and, and, but, but then, so I think sometimes as business people, we think we're second-class citizens doing, you know, like you said, the JV, give that analogy and kind of how you think about that.
1: Oh yeah, I think Jeff, the, the there's so many metaphors of the sacred-secular divide. I, I think there's still a very widespread, maybe sometimes unspoken, but still widespread belief in the church that if you're a really serious Christian, you're gonna go into some flavor of full-time ministry. And the second-class Christians go make money and they give money to the first-class Christians. And look, by the way, I don't think a lot of the missionaries and pastors I know, they're not propagating that point. No it's, it's just that it's sort of almost embedded in our mindset of really, really holy people are full-time pastors. One of the things I love is like, uh, of the 12 apostles or disciples, Jesus, 12 disciples, not one of them was a professional clergyman, (laughs) right? Like they were business guys and fishermen and a tax collector and farmers and a zealot, whatever that was. I think He was kind of crazy, but I, you know, at the end of the day, I think there's a sense of, We've gotten. There's a great quote. You know, Billy Graham, the most powerful evangelist of the last century, kind of said late in his life. I think the next great movement of God is going to be in the marketplace. You know, like, like the church is still, you know, the most important institution God established on earth. But, but the church doesn't have the same kind of influence it had at one point. And so, those of us that are in the market, talking to our friends and colleagues all day every day, we get to be the salt and light. And, and draw them toward the church, perhaps, but they don't, they don't necessarily want to come to church anymore. Like most, most Americans were doing a hundred years ago. Like it was normative to go to church. Now it is not normative to go to church. And so can't count on the church to be reaching people that don't know the truth. You've got to, you've got to be that source of, of light and truth to the people you work with. Therefore, take that stewardship seriously about your calling, right? I love
0: I love that perspective because I think still a lot of people need that encouragement that if you love business and you're called to it do it you know uh yes. for a bigger reason but but do it and I think it's just so clear that your passion is around building companies and culture that mm. that's clearly the skills God gave you to do so that you keep doing that now there was another conversation we were having earlier about mm. kind of finish line all right so mm. now you know, we talked about all kinds of different ways of being generous, uh, as my buddy Brad Formsma says, you know, thoughts, words, money, influence, time, attention, stuff. I think a lot of those you're using to build the culture of the business, but Mm -hmm. in the money in that sense can be even, you know, with great comp to your employees. But there's another one which you mentioned, which is, this is just the way uh, capitalism and our capital markets work. You're well compensated as a public company CEO and there've been some different transactions. There's some going on. You have liquidity events and all these sort of things. And well, the capital markets provide liquidity, for example. okay. And so right. when you think about your own, and we were talking a little about finish line and that sort of thing. So how do you think about your sort of personal generosity? What are the things maybe that you're passionate about, you and your wife are passionate yeah. about, and how do you think about your role in those things?
1: Yeah, I think to to make sure, you know, everybody kind of gets that finish line thought, I think early on in, in our journey before we really had any significant wealth to deal with, got exposed to some good Christian kind of wealth counseling. And it was kind of like, hey, you know, if you're gonna potentially get to where you're nearly not kind of income driven, but you're wealth driven. And I think that's that's a big division. We don't talk enough about the church, right? Most of the folks in the church, and I was there and frankly expected to be there my whole life, like their income or like they get an income and they're, I think they're called to, to, to whether it's tithing or some sort of proportional giving off of that steady stream of income, but they don't have a large chunk <laughs> from which to deal. But there's some set of folks either through inheritance or wealth generation where there's a chunk to deal with, right? And you have to think, oh, differently about that chunk. And it might be large chunks, multiple chunks, whatever, but it's different than just an income stream that, that it's for a lot of folks is kind of enough to live on with a little left to give in their minds and maybe it expands and there's more to live on and more to give or whatever. Right. Well, the finish line thought I think is so powerful. It's like, okay, kind of some level wrestle with God. If your parents and married, I guess, wrestle with God. What, what is the lifestyle you think God's calling you to live? And you and I talk about this, I think there's a wide range there. I think sometimes the high end of that, I get a little uncomfortable sometimes with the the breadth and depth of lifestyle some believers let themselves go, and like, are you sure the the master is okay with you keeping that much for yourself? Um, but okay, wrestle with God for that, right? So there's a what do what do we live on, and then if you have children, there's a what do we want to leave for our kids or give to our kids? I'm I'm more much more a fan of give to your kids at an earlier stage of life so they can kind of use it as they go. You know, now that everyone's life expectancy is so much longer, like, does it really help a lot if you live to like late 80s or 90 to give your kids a bunch of money when they're 65 or 70? Like, that's not really helpful, is it? (laughs) Like, like they needed that from their 20s to their 60s, not at 60 (laughs) or 70. So we kind of had a view of kind of establish, you know, you you know this world, Jeff, like a trust that kind of helps them with education and and helps buy a home doesn't set them up in a home they can't afford on their own, that kind of thing. So there was like, what should we live on? What should our kids have? And then kind of everything beyond that finish line, we think is oriented for God's kingdom. And doesn't mean you give it all away at the moment you get it, but it means you sort of steward that toward that objective, not towards your lifestyle objective. And then you ask kind of, where do we go with that? You know, my wife and I, we didn't have like some overarching cause we had already always said that's our main thing right i've always been a very much a church first guy i grew up in the church was certainly exposed to great parachurch things like young life and crusade crew now and all that stuff but i was you know always felt a strong calling to say hey i'm in a local church i should always be very supportive of my local church you know in helping the poor you know i think we all got to live with you know widows and orphans and the poor are pretty universally throughout scripture, like, be careful, make sure you're doing things that I think support the poor and those that are needy. For us, what that's come to look like is a fair amount of support of things in kind of the homelessness arena, food, widows and orphans, things like compassion kids, things like foster and adoption ministries, things where we're kind of explicitly focused on that collection of, you know, widows, orphans, and poor. But because I'm a business guy, like you said, and I feel my calling there. I also feel like I want to support kind of what I what generally gets called marketplace ministry things, right? Things that are trying to help advance people who are trying to have a good mission slash ministry in the market. Organizations you and I both know, C12 and CEO Forum and, and things that are doing good things, trying to help equip and train and encourage people to be good marketplace leaders, right? So those are probably the main things. There's so many other wonderful, and and we support some um, pro-life things. We support just like a wide range of stuff, I guess, at the end of the day. But there's some things that are definitely more, more kind of where we kind of lean toward than others. And we just keep kind of waiting to see at times of God put certain things in front of us. And we feel like, wow, that's a place we really need to go. I've done stuff in Africa, done stuff in other countries. It just, you know, it's a wide range for me. Makes sense
0: and and i think the you know the questions that we often ask and i think you did a great job of framing it without me even uh, mm. setting it up is you know the the questions we always ask families are how much is enough for you nobody really ever asks that because that implies a finish line and and i think what our society says what are you talking about a little more it's always a little more
1: yes Yes. for me and that you'll uh-huh. never win
0: that game because it's kind of a nope. comparison game frankly yep. that we don't like to say yep. Yep. And then, how much is enough for the kids? Also, a very, that's probably the most common question we get. How much, how much is it? Yeah. should I give the kids? And uh, there's a bunch of great lines about that. One of them's yeah, kind of like what you said you want to give them a leg up, but maybe not two legs up on the couch. Okay. That's one of my, <laughs> I heard that. that's that's one of my favorites. And, uh, and then the Warren funny. Buffett, you know, so much they can do anything, but not so much they can do nothing, do nothing. you know, that kind right. of thing. And then, uh, right. And then, okay, well, then you set your finish line, the kids. What do you do with the rest? And and you know, there's this sort of template that I think the world says it's just okay. You got three kids, divide your net worth by the three kids, and the only decision is you know what age are they full trustee of the whole thing. And but what about if you do this math? Okay, well then if you have this rest to give away, I always say I don't think you get credit, and it's certainly not fun to give it away when you're dead. Yeah, uh, no, so no. I don't think you're having fun, nor uh, uh, nor to get much of a tax break for yourself anyway. So anyway, it's a triple loser if you if you wait completely. So do it while you're living, and then you can include the family and all this. So I just love that you're already kind of on that trajectory. So, you know, and, and I think one thing that uh, we talked about a little bit is, you know, nothing's always up and to the right. And I know you were hmm. running a public company in 08. That couldn't have been fun. Uh, in Oh, the last oh technically week,
1: not in 08. We didn't go public so much later, but I, I lived through not so much. A, a hardcore economic downturn we didn't really face since yeah. we've been public. Those were while we were private. We had a period where we got a little below our forecast, and that was pretty painful. Uh, the market yes. punished us pretty hard. So yeah, to your point, I've, I've definitely experienced not all up into the right. That's only true. Once as a public guy, but that was sadly that was a little self inflicted more than it was the market. Hurting us, but uh, yes, to your point, I've definitely lived with not all up into the right. <laughs> what do you? What, so maybe you just share
0: with the uh, with somebody running on the treadmill who's maybe in the barrel a little bit right now, as we mm. say, struggling. Maybe you know we're we're in a little bit of a, a bear market now. It doesn't mean they're in in the public markets as you are now. I mean, you're experiencing this now. Although there's some things happening uh, with your company specifically that are good, but. You know, what would you say to somebody who's kind of struggling right now that, that, you know, has that entrepreneurial journey, wants to be generous, but maybe is is having a struggle?
1: Well, again, I think that's where we can come right back to the stewardship metaphor, right? Like, okay, um, is it the if you had a plan for giving, I'll just say you had a plan yeah. for giving that assumed a level of income or a level of business, because a lot of the folks I know on your podcast potentially could be private business owners right. and it and it really is a substantially large income stream, say that the business starts off. And maybe someday there's a the thought of potentially selling it. But a lot of those kind of businesses, there really isn't. There's just a nice large income stream through time. And maybe someday there's a transition to the next generation or whatever, right? And and so I think good stewardship would say, Well, look, you know. You need to respect that proportionality that, okay, if your income's going to be down, you know, you should at least be wary of that. You know, there's definitely things where I think people can sit and I, I never want to either question nor overly endorse what, what sometimes gets called kind of faith giving. Like God, I believe called me to give this thing a million dollars. I have no idea how I'm going to get there, but I'm just going to commit that million dollars. And I believe he's going to answer like, wow, if you really feel like God called you to do that and you don't yet know where it's going to come from that, that might put a lot of pressure on God. So I don't know about that, but, um, you know, but, but then I know people who just, uh, who's the famous missionary from the UK that had the orphanages that kind of oh, literally yeah. kind of didn't know where the money was not, not Whitfield. He was a preacher. I'm blank on that guy's name. Anyways. Um, you know, just like one time they set the kids all that great stories. They set the kids all down, there's no food yet. And somebody showed up with food at the door that they weren't expecting. I mean, just like crazy stories, God stories. And I think at the end of the day there, there's a sense of, I think good stewardship isn't like ungrounded in reality, faith living necessarily. Like, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I'm just going to do it anyways. Sometimes God calls people to step out in that level. But I think a lot of times it's like, hey, be a generous, thoughtful person who is well grounded in business principles, if you're a business person, and then just hope and pray that god blesses that business so you can be very generous with it and and if it's getting less blessing in a downturn i think it's okay to adjust potentially some of your plans but god may be calling you to nope, hold hold that giving high and let him show up in, in a way that you weren't expecting to give you more business than you thought you could get in a downturn right like not everything goes down in a downturn right some of the things that, that people forget is like during covid we were one of those businesses that didn't get really hurt we actually got probably helped a little bit because it kind of focused people on on what we did as potentially more important when everybody went remote. I like to say back in the day, like Carnival Cruises was really hurt and Zoom was really helped. And we were somewhere in the middle, but we were probably closer to Zoom than Carnival. <laughs> you know, like it was it was like a difficult time for a lot of folks, but not as difficult for us as we thought it originally might be. So to your point, I think in downturns, don't make assumptions that it's all going to be terrible for your business, nor necessarily you should just blindly continue on with whatever your plans were disregarding the reality you see around you. I don't think that's, that's godly to say, well, I don't care what I see around me. I'm just going to plow ahead. Anyway. It's like, really? I think God gave you a brain too. like use your brain. Right. So somewhere I I talk a lot about between guardrails, you know, like, I don't know the exact answer but be between here and here. <laughs> and George, George
0: Muller is, I think the guy you were thinking George of. George Muller, thank you. ran the thank orphanage you. and that's and the guy. Uh, I'm, I'm reading I'm reading his autobiography right now oh, so there you I go. just happen to have it uh there but uh it's it's amazing. so he
1: is definitely on one end. And then yeah, there's right? uh like,
0: there's somebody on the let's other let We sit end out to dinner even though
1: there's no food here and we'll hope that God shows up with dinner literally right now and then it happened. You're like wow. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's that's a level of faith I don't know I could – every claim i have
0: what do you um, think what but what for you what is i mean you mentioned it a little bit with economic downturns and you've been through these transitions and i'm sure there were scary points in building the last company or this company what's a story in your own life where you felt like man this is a scary time to get through as a as a business leader oh gosh
1: there's many <laughs> yeah. i tell people you know like the stock market itself right when you stand way back at the picture it's up and to the right for 150 200 years when you get a lot closer, it's a very jagged line, yes. right? Most businesses are much like that. Let's slip to the right generally over time. But if you get closer, there were some not great times. Probably the one that comes to mind, I mentioned that the first company we sold, right? This company, we almost got sold uh, twice, once really, really close. And when that didn't happen, it was pretty rough, right? Like everybody had begun to assume it, the board, our investors, the key leaders of the company who are well aware of it. And when that kind of slammed into the wall and didn't happen, which, you know, no need to go into that story in any depth here. Um, that was a pretty big mental reset that felt tragic and catastrophic in the moment. And again, not because our business was in trouble, we just did thought, okay, this is it. This is our exit. Here we go. Was this that with this
0: company or the previous yeah. company?
1: No, with th- the this last one. one got sold. This one almost got sold. Gotcha. And in retrospect, incredibly thankful that didn't happen. Right. The, the company's literally... 20x the size it was at that time. But at that time, it felt tragic and awful. And like, what's going on here, God, kind of reaction here, right? And I guess for me, that was the, okay, that that wasn't what we thought was going to happen. I don't know that we're being punished for something we did wrong here. (laughs) Like there wasn't an ethics failure. And that's why we didn't get the company sold. It was just like, well, I better just stay true to the principles that I believe have gotten us here i better stay true to what i believe god's calling me to do as a leader and a father and a husband and and put my head down and try to figure out how to get out of this state to the next state and there was some question at that point whether i should still leave the company it was a pretty dark time right it was a pretty dark time and you know we we got through that i guess is only only way i can say it we got through that and and i guess that was part of me learning to hold it loosely i, I always yeah. feel like what what i was able to do always but that was probably the best test of it was if this gets taken away i'm okay like my wife loves yeah. me my kids love me i've already had some level of success i could go get a job somewhere somehow if this thing blew up i wouldn't go jump off something <laughs> like or i should say i might jump off a footstool but i don't think i'd do anything more than sprain an ankle so um so there was a sense of well this isn't what defines me we didn't really talk about this jeff and, and i think it affects the generosity thing because the the word identity. I talked about it. We're in the identity business, but like our identity, if we don't get our identity right, that's where these things get all fouled up. If your identity is I'm a steward, then if this thing doesn't go right, well, that's I did it all I could to steward it, but there was nothing I could do here to save this business. And I'm not I'm not a failure because this business didn't work potentially, right? I think this um, is
0: so important. I think this is fantastic because mm-hmm. uh we're constantly dealing with people that are selling their businesses. That's kind of our Mm, our niche mm, who who want to be generous. And we do the philanthropic planning. I can't tell. It's a minority of them. Even once the investment bankers are hired, the book's out, okay, public Mm -hmm. or private. It's a minority that go through, you know? And uh, and everybody assumes in the process, at the beginning of the process, it's going to happen. And sometimes our client, who's usually in the C-suite, is let go when it doesn't. Mm frankly. Mm -hmm. And all of them wrestle, even the believers wrestle with that identity. Like, wait, I thought I knew who I was, but uh, wait. And so one of the lines we use a lot is obedience over outcome. Boom. Obedience Mm -hmm. over outcome. If you're a steward, as you said, I love the way you said it. Like, look, if I identify as a steward, look, I'm just dealing with the owner's stuff, managing it best I can. I, I can't control outcomes. That's up to God to have the outcome. So I love that idea that you said of holding it loosely, thinking as a steward. And frankly, if if it goes great, give the owner credit. And yeah, if absolutely. it goes poorly, I guess he's got something around the corner for me. And fortunately, he had something positive around the corner for you. Uh yeah. in my experience, it almost is some always something positive. Now you may not 100%. see it at the time. But I don't 100%. think I don't think uh you probably don't believe in coincidence, I'm guessing.
1: No, I do not. And, and to get a little out of personal story, I won't go here long, but my mom passed away, sadly, younger and earlier. And I don't know that we would have ever made the move to Texas if my mom hadn't already passed away because we were pretty tied in with, with you know, we love both families, but we were kind wow. of living near my family. And my mom died in the early 90s. And the next year is the year I came to Tivoli. And... I'm not sure I would have moved here. And I've always said, look, I hate it when, when Christians say something bad is good. It was bad that my mom died young. It wasn't good. Uh, she died in her 50s, and that's too young. And yet, at the same time, the whole Romans 828, you know, that's working exactly all things thinking. for good, right? Like, I don't know that we would have come to Texas. And if we hadn't come to Texas, all the story you and I have just spent time on wouldn't have happened. I don't know. I certainly don't believe God took my mom so this could happen. I don't think that's the way God operates. But I think because that happened I was willing to consider this move and now I've seen how God has used it powerfully. But but I think that whole mindset of uh, I love your obedience over outcomes like I'm going to do what I'm called to do, try to be faithful to what I believe I'm being called to do and that's all I can do, right? And 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 how it turns out isn't up to me and if it goes well then back to our topic you know then I should be very generous because it's not my stuff in the first place if it doesn't go well I should learn from it and maybe see what's next <laughs> right but yeah there's no like say my identity is so tied up in this that if it fails I'm a failure right yeah I think that's a very unhealthy place to be right all right so so let we
0: try to close mark with uh with one thought so remember this is I mean, obviously, obviously to everyone that's in their car right now listening, they know that I'm not a professional at this. I run a company, you run a company, my co-hosts all run companies. Nobody's doing this as their day job. This is just simply friends talking and trying to encourage other people who share something in common where they want to be generous mm. and and their leaders in businesses. And so- I'm just picturing somebody in the car driving. They're behind you. Maybe they're like ten years behind you. They're building mm. an organization. Maybe there's a little, a little dip in the economics happening right now. They want to be generous, but you know, just in general, kind of the younger you, you could almost say like if I went back ten years and I gave myself advice, you know, what's mm. one like? You would talked about culture. Maybe it could be that direction. I don't want to lead you though. Wh- whatever place you'd say, if you just had one little like practical tip that this person could go in and try to work on inside their company with their spouse around generosity, whatever it is, what's maybe just one practical thing you'd leave them with.
1: Hmm. Well, that's a great question. I'm going to try to stay close to your core topic because I think there's some, some richness we could go in here. I think that idea of, of being faithful about having a generous mindset when you don't have as much as you think you might someday have. (laughs) In other words, when you're a young, if you're an entrepreneurial founder type or an owner of a smaller business that you think has potential to grow, or if you're a, maybe these aren't the listeners to your podcast, right? but But a junior executive who hopes to someday be a senior executive. In any case, that idea that so many, I think, stewardship and giving conversations are, oh, we can't afford to give now, but once we have more, we will give. I think that is just a very, very bad, approach and that generally doesn't work because like you said everybody's view is i just want a little bit more i'd like to have a little more lifestyle a little nicer car a little nicer house a little nicer clothes a little nicer vacations and so we didn't mention it one of my go-to books in this whole topic is randy alcorn's little classic treasure principle right like if you want a very quick read that really captures a lot of great biblical truth about this topic go read that book it takes 30 minutes and and one of his things is just that you don't you don't Figure this out later. You figure it out with wherever you are. And then, as God expands your potential income generation capability, wealth, whatever, it's like you've already developed the muscle of generosity. So, if you're younger and you don't think you can be generous yet, try. (laughs) Like, live below your lifestyle a little bit. Take a little less of whatever it is you think you need, you know, a vacation, a car, a home, so that you can. Get in the habit of being generous, and then expand that as you get more. Don't expand your. What does he say? Something like your. He doesn't increase your standard of and living. Living versus standard of giving, giving is the phrase, something like that, right? So, like you know, learn how to give with little. That's that's the whole point. That back to our stewardship parable, right? He says you've been faithful a little. I'm going to let you do a lot more. I mean, that's the principle, right? Like if you're faithful and generous in your 20s and 30s with what you have. I think it's a proverb, not a promise, right? But generally, you see a lot of cases where God then says, I'm going to give you more. And I'm going to to let you continue to be generous with more because I saw you being faithful with less. And I just think at least go down that path. You may not be given more, but you might. So get comfortable with that mindset, and then you'll know how to live it out when you have more.
0: I just just love that. The generosity mindset, regardless of – and we're kind of back to the obedience – you can't see the future. You don't know what it's going to be like. So it takes a little faith to be generous, even in the downturn, you know, with whatever right. you've got. Maybe it's as a percentage or whatever it is, but just there takes a. It's an element of faith and that faith muscle will work itself out. And God usually does bless that. I mean, he tells that 100%. parable for a reason. So uh, I just love that. Well, Mark, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us. Your story is certainly inspiring and I know will inspire many others. Thanks so much. Oh,
1: Jeff, it's a lot of fun. I hope, I hope it's helpful to folks. And yeah, I appreciate what you guys are doing to get these thoughts out there for people to chew on. i really, really, really privileged to be a part of it. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for
0: joining us on uh, this week's episode of Generous Business Owner Podcast. I'm Jeff Thomas. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rupp. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.